We're about two-thirds of the way now through our Just Jesus series. The intent uh, since the beginning of the year has been simply to take an extended look at Jesus. Not to try and be something necessarily, but to try and become something more by looking at Jesus intently. We've been going through some of the, if you like, the mountain peaks in the New Testament, the, if you like, the high points. Uh, it's all elevated ground, but the high points that most wonderfully speak about Jesus. Today, our title is Jesus, God's Final Word. Here are a few final words that I found. Apparently, Marie Antoinette as she made her way to the guillotine to be executed, stepped on her executioner's foot and said, pardonnez-moi, monsieur, which sounds far too polite for someone who's about to be executed. So Winston Churchill's last words apparently were, I'm bored with it all. And uh, Spike Milligan, true to form, had put on his gravestone, I told you I was ill. (laughs) Today's New Testament mountain peak tells us about Jesus, who is God's final authoritative word. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It will come up on the screen. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This letter, known to us as Hebrews, was written to first century Jewish people who were under pressure And they were under pressure and being tempted to revert back to Judaism and kind of leave Jesus behind. They were in trouble. They were facing persecution and they had certain theological confusion. This letter is written to remind them and try and show them as clearly as possible, don't leave Jesus, don't desert him. He really, truly is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And this letter encourages them to stand firm in really difficult times. Chapter 10, verse 35, kind of sums it up. Do not throw away your confidence in Jesus. It will be richly rewarded. And in in that regard, this letter reminds me of the letter called Revelation at the end of the Bible. It reminds me really of a lot of the context of the New Testament. You see, believers in Jesus in the first century were under lots of pressure. They gave up a lot. They were ridiculed. There was a lot of persecution going on. And God's consistent message to them under trouble, facing persecution, was simply this. See Jesus. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's everything in between. He's the creator, the king, the judge, the Lord of history. Whatever shape your life is in, whatever circumstances you're facing, God says to you, see Jesus. Because our greatest need is always a clearer sight of Jesus. Just as we get here in Hebrews chapter 1. 
We're going to look at a few things that we find in this passage as we try and see more clearly who is this Jesus. Firstly, Jesus is God's final word. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, through the centuries of the Old Testament, God had been speaking. From the very beginning in Genesis, he speaks and creation comes into being. He keeps speaking in all sorts and manners of ways through the prophets. But not only those designated in our Bible as prophets, at many times and in various ways. Think, think of some of their powerful words through which God spoke. Think of the extraordinary moment as Moses gives all the commandments from God. Think of Samuel's judgments. Think of David's worship recorded for us in the book of Psalms. Think of of Isaiah and Ezekiel's prophecies. God is powerfully speaking from beginning to the end of the Old Testament. And think as well of God speaking through their powerful works right through the Old Testament. Think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Think of Moses' confrontations with Pharaoh. What's going on there? God is speaking. Think of the Exodus. Think of the prophet's miracles. Think of David's victories in battle. Think of Solomon erecting the glorious temple where God would be worshipped and where his presence would be. God was constantly speaking, speaking of himself, speaking of what he's like, speaking of what he requires of his people, of mankind, speaking of what really matters in life and speaking of his plan to one day send his son, the servant who would be the Messiah. And now, This writer to the Hebrews can say, but in these last days, God has been speaking, 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 making himself known, speaking continually. But now, in these last days, you see, it's connected to the past. It's not that God has said, oh, well, forget that. That never worked. No, it's connected to the past, but distinct from the past. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, in the person of his son, in the words of his son, in his son's actions, and in his death and his resurrection, God is declaring his message to all of humankind. All former speaking led decisively to this word, God's final word, his authoritative word, like no other in Jesus. I think I may have mentioned before that uh, once while I was in Torquay, I went to an interfaith meeting. I was just intrigued. I was interested uh, to see how it would go, what would happen. We went round the room and we each had to introduce ourselves, just say which faith we were from and what our name was. The first guy said, I'm a Muslim Christian, which doesn't make sense. The, the second one, as we went round, said, I'm a free-thinking Christian. In other words, I quite like Jesus, but don't tell me what to think. I don't really need the Bible. I'll just think whatever I want. That doesn't make sense at all. Another one said, I'm a Baha'i. Baha'i is a growing faith around the world. It is ultra-inclusive, or aims to be anyway. And I read of this, of the Baha'i faith. The prophets and teachers include Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Zoroaster, 
Krishna and the Buddha, and in the contemporary period, two others. There will be more manifestations in the future. The belief of the Baha'i faith is that anything will do. You can believe whatever you like, you can be included, and that God has sent different messengers over time, different manifestations. Jesus was one of them, and then there have been others, and there will be more to come in the future. But we affirm, because the Bible declares, that Jesus is not just another voice or manifestation. He is God's full, definitive word and revelation. All former speaking were partial revelations. Jesus is the final, complete, authoritative word from God because he is the word of God. And we are not waiting for another word or another manifestation. Jesus is God's final word. Imagine I'm, uh, I'm married to Jackie for 31 years. Imagine I'd, way back, imagine I'd heard about her. And then I heard others speaking about her. And then imagine that I saw some of the things that she'd done or made. And then imagine that I'd read something she'd written. And then imagine she wrote to me personally. And then imagine she spoke to me on the phone. They're all accurate representations and words from her at many times and in various ways. But then she turns up and starts relating to me in person, in the flesh. That's a self-disclosure of an altogether different order. What I had previously heard is now supremely, decisively on display in the flesh in front of me. Jesus is God's final full revelation in person in front of us. And we are not waiting. When I met Jackie finally in person, I wasn't waiting for the next manifestation. <laughs> that was it. That was as good as it... No, I mean, that, that was it. That was, that <laughs> it's all right, she's at Southbourne. She's not watching. She, that was all I needed. This was all the previous ones led up to that. I have never been waiting for another one. We are not waiting for another. Jesus is God's final word. Two things about Jesus, this final word here. Firstly, his glorious nature. Verse 2, he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Those words are amazing. Each of these passages we've looked at have just been absolutely rammed with extraordinary descriptions. He is heir of all things. He's the agent of creation. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. He's our savior. He's the one now reigning in heaven. There are Two crucial words in that passage that help us to know who this Jesus is as God's full and final word or revelation. The first one, the NIV, the translation we have here, translates as radiance. 
When this writer says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, radiance is a translation of a word meaning a shining forth, a full and complete display of God's glory, the full glow of his majesty in all its brilliance presented in physical form. You see, Jesus is the sun, not just a reflection. He's the blazing sun, not just warmth. He's the blazing fire at the center of all life. Jesus is God shining with all the godness of God. The second word that's really important here is a single Greek word that's translated in the NIV as, uh, they, uh, they put it as, it, it, as exact representation. You see, the reason that Christ is the radiance of God's glory is that he is the exact representation of God's being. Exact representation is the word that was used for stamping coins. You can imagine a a coin stamping press. There would be an image on the original and it would be pressed into soft metal and the image that you would get out on the new coin, out of the soft metal, would be exactly the same as the original. Not merely like it, not merely an image of the original, but exactly like the original. Jesus is exactly God. N.T. Wright says of this, it is as though the exact imprint of the Father's very nature and glory has been precisely produced in the soft metal of the Son's human nature. That's put so well. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory because he is the exact representation. Colossians 2 verse 9 tells us, In Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And this, most of you don't sound shocked I haven't heard many gasps this morning. But this is the very outrageous thing that Jesus claimed and that the rest of the New Testament confirms. That Jesus came not only to point us to God, nor even only to show us what God is like, but to show us God. We need to be careful when we sometimes say Jesus came to show us what God is like. Well, yes, but he came to show us God because he is the exact representation of his being. Jesus said things like this. No wonder they wanted to crucify him. If anybody turned up and started saying this, we would want them locked away. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He said, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. And it's worth reiterating that in a Jewish world, these were truly deeply shocking things to say. And then, not only was it that Jesus was saying it, it's that a whole army of people within Judaism to begin with, called Christians, those who became followers and believers in Christ, they started treating him as God. 
Something dramatic must have happened. You could do that in the Roman world. You could do that in the Hindu world today. You could say anything's a God. Anyone's a God. But in the Jewish world, to start saying, this man who lived and claimed to be God, who rose from the dead, he is God, is absolutely extraordinary. That they should ascribe Godness to someone who has been here in physical form. I mentioned last time, Thomas didn't see Jesus raised from the dead, first of all. Jesus comes later to him. Thomas is absolutely blown away, bows down and says, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't say to him, Thomas, you're half right. The first bit, my Lord, that's okay. That's kind of a good greeting anyway. Thomas, let's leave the God bit aside. That's a bit over the top. I know you're amazed to see me alive again, but Jesus receives Thomas's worship. So we reject the Muslim view of Jesus as one of many prophets. We reject the Jehovah's Witness view that he is the greatest created being. We reject the Mormon view that he is not eternally God. He's not just a superman. He's not just a holy man. He's the exact representation of God's glorious being and nature. In human form. Let me tell you something. That's why you can trust him. You're not trusting a good teacher only. You're not trusting a moral example. You're not trusting an inspiring leader. When you're trusting Jesus, you're trusting God. His glorious nature. And then Jesus' glorious Work. You see, the author in these majestic Jesus-filled words then goes on to speak of Jesus' work in two ways. Firstly, Jesus' work in creation, which he describes in a couple of ways. Firstly, that Christ is the agent of creation and then that he's the sustainer of it. So he says very clearly here of the Son, through whom God made the universe. Colossians tells us, by him all things were created. John tells us, through him all things were made. The, um, sp- uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, a couple of years ago, had its 30th anniversary. And this was the picture that they released, or one of the pictures they released on the 30th anniversary. I mean, that is mind-blowing. It looks like a little bit of cloud I have no idea how big that is. You could not possibly grasp it. It is hundreds of light, thousands of light years across at least. Edwin Hubble, the guy who designed and this uh, telescope was named after, said this, We do not know why we are born into the world, but we can try to find out what sort of world it is. Sounds like a noble claim. We don't know why we're here, but let's make the most of it and let's find out what we can about it. But this universe is more than just a happy or unhappy accident. There is one through whom everything was created that is here. Let me tell you what this this also means. You are not just a happy or unhappy accident. We do know why this world was born. We do know why each of us is here. The will of the creator said, let there be light. Let there be worlds. Let there be galaxies. Let there be stars and moons and earth and sky and grass and water. And let there be you. 
you are not an accident. Whether life is easy or life is hard, you are not a happy or an unhappy accident. There is a creator God. And then he's also, verse 3, the sustainer. He's the keeper, the carrier, the preserver of creation. It says here he is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Apparently, I'm I'm no scientist, but apparently... All the forces that we experience, of which there are many in the world, can be boiled down to four essential ones, four key ones, four on which everything else hangs together. The gravitational force, the weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and the strong nuclear force. You you didn't know you were going to get a science lesson added in this morning, did you? These forces govern everything that happens in the universe And they hold everything together. But Jesus created those forces and he holds them together. And so he holds everything that they hold together. Everything is held together by him. Everything is sustained by him. Your very breathing this very morning is sustained and held together by him. The fact you can do anything comes under the compass of all that he is sustaining. Physicists Search for the grand theory of everything. It's a well-known term, the theory of everything. How does everything hold together? Is there a unifying theory that we can get together? One space website said, the theory of everything, if there is one, would explain everything in the universe, from quantum particles to spiral galaxies. Let me tell you, let's remind ourselves, there is an explanation, and his name is Jesus, who created everything and in whom everything holds together. I once watched a website, a simple graphical one, that took you on a scale. You could slide the scale from the, you know, so man was in the middle or humankind was in the middle of the scale. And if you went this way, it went smaller and smaller and smaller to a shrimp and then to, I don't know what, an atom and then down and down and down. I couldn't get my head around it. And you come back up to here to mankind in the middle and then you go this way. There's an elephant, I seem to remember, and then a blue whale and then a continent and then the earth and then our galaxy, and then worlds beyond ours that we have no idea about, and so on. It was absolutely mind-bending. Let me tell you, Jesus holds all of that together, and he holds you together as well. And most wonderfully, verse 3, not only his work in creation, but his work in salvation, which is summed up for us in this passage by this phrase, he provided purification for sins. It's an interesting choice of words. I wonder if it's because he's writing to this this Jewish group who are struggling and it's picking up. It's a word that picks up on how Jesus is all that the Old Testament sacrificial system intended to purify from sin. Because mankind's problem, of course, is not simply ignorance. It's not simply deprivation. It's not simply that we are unfortunate, but that we are impure, that we are polluted and dead in sin and guilty. So here, folks, comes grace. 
this Holy One, the radiant glory of God, the exact imprint in flesh of the invisible God, the creator and sustainer of all things steps into our filthy, stinking, dirty, disgusting mess of our own making and bears it all, becoming sin for us to provide purification of sins. Friends, that is grace upon grace upon grace. And then note one more quick thing. Note this. Verse 3, that after all this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What the Old Testament temple and priest and sacrifice could never fully achieve in that those sacrifices were insufficient and never-ending. This priest, this one, this temple in whom God and man meet has done it all for us by becoming temple priest and sacrifice himself. I want to take you very quickly to a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 10, just over the page, says this, day after day, talking about the Old Testament scheme of things, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, not only day after day, but again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But be glad of this, when this priest, Jesus, the Son of God, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. The Old Testament priests, their sacrifices went on and on and on. They kept standing to perform them. This priest, our great high priest, the one who's mediated between God and us, has done his work and he has signified that it is done, complete, finished forever by not standing anymore, but by sitting on his throne. It is done. It is finished. He has accomplished <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> I ran out of breath and forgot to breathe. He has done it all. No wonder on the cross he shouted out his last words, it is finished. Amen. So whatever your situation, and there will be many represented here, whatever your difficulties, and there will be many, each of us is facing difficulties, whatever your pressures, here's what the whole New Testament and certainly this passage says, get a clearer sight of Jesus. Do not throw away your confidence in him. It will be richly rewarded. Amen?